I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world, battle by battle. I'm your host, Cullen, and you're listening to Cauldron, a history of the world battle by battle. And today's battle, we are covering the the siege of Fort William Henry during the Seven Years' War. I first off want to just say thank you guys for hanging in there. Your patience is incredible. Uh, I wish I could get this uh, content out with more regularity, and I am working on it. I think our newest system is going to work really well, but, uh, you know, Things have been pretty crazy, so I, I appreciate everybody hanging in there uh, and, and and waiting for me to get this out. As always, thank you for listening. Go to iTunes or whatever podcast service you're listening on. Rate, review, and subscribe. If you want images and videos and interaction on that level, check out the social media, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, we're posting currently about the upcoming Battle of Aya Drang. And uh, there's some images for the Fort William Henry series that uh, that you can definitely enjoy while you listen. I will say that this is going to be a, an episode where I think we're going to talk a little bit about the commercial side or the artistic side because some of the art that stems from this particular battle I find to be really compelling and really interesting. So... Without further ado, let's get to the siege of Fort William Henry itself. The Seven Years' War is a massive global conflict. It's probably the first true global war, or world war, if you will. Uh, What it ends up being is this kind of vying for dominance on the North American continent between France and Britain. It's a struggle really to try and define what the empire, uh, which empire will be in control of the North American continent and its resources, and also what kind of empire that's going to be. You have France gets there kind of uh, ahead of the ball game. They explore deeper into the heart of North America than the coast-bound English. Uh, They have a lot of kind of, uh, they have a lot of dealings with the natives. They have really healthy, amicable alliances built up with these native tribes deeper into the continent than the British do. Uh, They stake a larger claim to the land. And most important of all, they they really uh, chisel out and and create a very lucrative, intricate trade network uh, of furs all over the North American continent. The British, on the other hand, are, again, coastal. They are focused on building centers of population, and they are doing a a hell of a job at this point. Uh, We're talking mid-1700s, 1750, 1755. You've got ships coming daily from Britain with new passengers, new colonists, new people coming. Um, These cities in Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Charleston, uh, they're just 
really, really rapidly growing and getting bigger and bigger. Um, the other aspect that you have to keep in mind is that the British and French are both transporting everything across the ocean. So, and it's not like in World War II where you'd have uh, the the massive merchant marine of Great Britain or the United States or whatever, uh, whichever country you want to pick. But the at the time, it's all sail and wooden ships. So the trip is going to take quite a while. They're really reliant on that connection back home. Whoever controls the shipping lanes is going to have a lot of say in what happens in this war. Um, I'm not going to get too deep in the weeds on the war itself or how it goes about getting fought uh, because I want to get right to the siege. But suffice to say, there's some uh, butting of heads. There's early skirmishing. Uh, the French and the British have spent the last 60 or so years fighting small proxy wars uh, between the two. So they're not directly fighting all the time or they're not having any huge uh, particular conflict, but they're having the, the British are paying one native tribe to harass the French outposts. So the French are paying one native tribe to uh, raid into New England or whatever it might be. There's there's that kind of low-level fighting going on pretty regularly throughout the, the early part of the 18th century. Uh, 1753, there's some French troops from uh, Canada that march south and seize and fortify the Ohio River Valley. Uh, Britain protests this invasion uh, because they claim the Ohio for itself, but there's no, like, UN, there's no governing international body to adjudicate that. It's just kind of each side claimed it, and whoever gets there first is the guy in charge. Uh, I believe the French planted, or uh, as part of their claim, they dug holes and put either either iron or lead plates that stated that this was French territory in the ground in the uh, in the hopes that when the British show up, the French, uh, you know, some French representative can just be like, oh, no, 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 there's a plate in the ground there right underneath your feet. And it clearly states that this land is France. Uh, so, you know, get off our land. So both empires claim the Ohio River Valley. And then it just comes down to who's going to get there first with the most manpower and the most guns. Uh, there, there's a French representative named Jomonville. Uh, he and a third of his escort is killed by a British patrol led by George Washington. Yes, the future president of the United States, that George Washington, uh, started off a fairly ignominious career as a soldier in the uh, Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War, in 1754. Uh, in retaliation, the French and the their allied Indians defeat the British at Fort Necessity. That is uh, a story in and of itself. Washington is forced to surrender after losing a, a third of his own force during that siege. Uh, the The whole affair with Jomonville and Washington is fascinating. There's a character named the Half King. Uh, he's a native chief named Tenegrisson, and he and his men, we're not sure. It's either they surprise this French patrol and massacre it, or... The British claim that they 
beat them fair and square in a fight, and the French, it seems to me, and and it seemed to the author of um, uh, Fred Anderson, the author of the uh, the Crucible of War, the the main source I used on this, that that Washington just had no control over the half king and his men. Uh, and it seems like the situation spiraled. Tenegrisson uh, goes in and I believe he bashes in Jomonville's head or he tomahawks him to death, one of the two. And the, the whole thing just kind of turns into this, uh, this bizarre little shit show in the middle of the forest and neither side knows where to go from there. Uh, 1755, the British decide that they're going to try and defeat the French with multiple little plans. Uh, they have an officer named Moncton who successfully captures the Fort of Bougeur and Major General Edward Braddock. He and his troops are defeated at the Battle of Monongahela. Uh, William Johnson's troops stop the French advancing around the uh, around Lake George. So there's a lot of moving parts. A lot of things are happening, uh, and the war isn't officially declared until 1756, when uh, Great Britain declares war on France, and the conflict now becomes truly global. It goes to Europe, Africa, Asia, South America, wherever these two empires have even small little outposts in India or the coast of uh, some island in the Caribbean or in Europe itself. Now the war is real, it's live, and it's going to be fought wherever they can come to grips with each other. One of those places is going to be in the Lake George region of New York. All right, so in 1757, in mid-March, 1,500 Canadian, uh, French, and Native allies under governor, the Governor General's little brother, Francois-Pierre Rigaud, approach Fort William Henry with the intent of taking it. However, over the four-day span that they are attacking the fort and its small winter garrison, the French didn't bring any cannons, so they're having... They, They're unable to breach the fort's walls. All they brought were scaling ladders, hoping that they would just be able to overwhelm and swarm the defenders. The garrison, though, held its ground under a Major William Iyer, and the attackers eventually have to withdraw to Fort Ticonderoga of future fame. The attack was fairly ineffective in terms of, uh, it was very ineffective in terms of taking the fort. It was fairly ineffective in terms of uh, killing British. But what it did do uh, well and what it was was successful at was burning the fort's outbuildings. So the barracks, the storehouses, the sawmill, the hospital, and most importantly, they burnt all of the fort's bateaux, which are uh, light, flat-bottom river boats uh, used in the eastern and central North America, uh, and and the half-built sloop, so a one-masted sailboat with a, a fore and an aft mainsail and a jib. Now, I'm not a sailor, so not much of that makes sense to me, or it doesn't mean much to me, other than my Patrick O'Brien knowledge. Um, but it's important to the fort at uh, Fort William Henry because these boats allowed the fort to, uh, it provided them intelligence, it gave them the ability to run recon on the lake, uh, and it allowed uh, for a defense of the lakeside of the fort. So if the enemy wants to approach with boats, it's a lot easier if you've got a few of your own boats with guns on them to, uh, to stop any canoes or uh, rafts or whatever might be floating down down the lake to uh, to harass the 
lakeward side of the fort. So with their boats destroyed, the British are in a, in a bit of a pickle here because in order for them to get the boats rebuilt, they'd need to bring in a shipwright from New England. Uh, that could take months. The whole affair did uh, very little to affect the fort's physical strength. And the garrison was, like I said, it was battered, but it was largely intact and unharmed. The, again, the real damage was in the loss of supplies, uh, which is obviously essential in any siege, and the loss of those outbuildings and boats. The gunships that the French burned would eventually, as you'll see, prove to be uh, a decisive uh, part of the entire siege of Fort William Henry. Because when Fort William Henry becomes uh, comes under siege again, the French are now able to load some, some cannons onto, uh, or load some artillery from Fort Carillion, onto some boats and bring them down the lake. The success of the raid had another added effect. It got the Native Americans really excited. Uh, it began to spread like wildfire that Rigaud and his raid on Fort William Henry had gone well. And so now you have the tribes going word, word of mouth, spreading the idea that, hey, maybe the French are onto something. Maybe we can hop in and, and get a little taste of the loot from whatever is about to happen between the French and British. So the Ottawa, the Potawatomi, the Abenaki, uh, the, all these tribes up in the northern, in the northern New York, in the New England, in the Quebec region, the Great Lakes tribes, all these tribes start to congregate and meet up in the woods around Lake George in the spring of 1757. The swarming natives really become important because the the ability for the British to uh, recon or collect intelligence is completely dissipated. Uh, Rogers Rangers were uh, led by Robert Rogers. It's a group of very skilled outdoorsmen. Uh, they attempted to be kind of a pseudo-native uh, force. They fought like the natives. They tried to live like the natives. They tried to be able to do whatever the Native Americans were capable of doing. Uh, they weren't always super successful. Uh, during the 1757 campaign, Rogers Rangers had a, a truly disastrous scouting mission into the Fort Carillion region in January. Uh, ends up killing a quarter of Robert's men. He himself was injured. They had to retreat. And what ends up uh, the outcome of that is that the the French have a complete intelligence coup over the British. They have no the British have no ability to see what's going on in the French back area uh, or near their forts. And this is a problem because uh, Commander in Chief uh, CIC General Webb for the British has now been blinded. He has no idea what the French are doing. And he has no idea that there is now a now a massive army of natives being uh, called together by the French. And, and really, uh, General Webb probably wasn't the guy to deal with this anyways. He's kind of a timid, melancholy, uh, diffident general who is prone to overreact or panic. Um, and it seems like he really... He let things get to him as they were happening. Instead of trying to slow events down and, and make choices, he kind of, not, not necessarily panicked, but he just 
allowed things to snowball before he really made decisive actions. Uh, and he was in charge of the frontier defense, and he was designated that by Lord Loudon uh, back in London, who had no idea what was go- going on out there. So it's really hard to see. And obviously the time the time period, this is how things are done, but uh, Lord Loudon didn't know what was going on. So for him to pick General Webb, uh, is, you know, not a great idea. The battles of Monongale and Oswego were huge French victories in 1756 uh, that attracted, again, warriors from all over the place and added to the warriors that were coming because of that earlier raid on Fort William Henry. They, these numbers start to swell. You had, you had Native Americans coming from 1,500 miles uh, away. By the end of the summer, there were warriors uh, at Fort Carillion from Michigan, Wisconsin, New York, Canada, even some Sauk and some Fox warriors from the Plains and Iowa region, uh, just Native Americans from all over the place. At By the end of the summer, there's 2,000 of them. Uh, and then when you add that to the 6,000 French regulars, Marines, and Canadian militia, you have a 8,000-man uh, army. And and the thing to keep in mind is the French and Indian War, the Seven Years' War, this is a war fought by small forces. Because, again, you've got sail and wood ships that have to move people and, and resources and uh, supplies. So you're not really able to, you're not going to see 50,000-man armies in the North American continent in 1757. It's just not going to happen. They, they, they don't have the capability to do that. Uh, so we're talking small conflicts, usually hundreds of men, sometimes thousands. So this 8,000-man army put together by the French under General Montcalm uh, is huge. It's a big army. It's something that the British, if they had known how big it was, would have probably panicked even more than they did. Uh, but because, again, Robert Rogers is unable unca- to uh, to recon or recon- reconnoiter the uh, French forces, they have no idea what they're facing. Now, Montcalm is an interesting guy, and we're going to talk a little bit more about him towards the end um, of this episode. But Suffice it to say, he's a European through and through. He wants to fight a European-style war. He wants it to be fought by European-type soldiers. He's not into this uh, Native American hit-and-run, raiding type of of, uh, warfare. He really doesn't trust the Native Americans. He he feels like he has a hard time predicting what they're going to do. He feels like he doesn't have as much control over them as he would like. And with 33 different Native American nations and languages, um, Montcalm really had his work cut out for him. It, it was, uh, he was trying to coordinate this massive army for the day uh, with people that didn't even speak French or didn't even know uh, how to read. There was just a lot at play here for Montcalm to try and pull things together and make it work. Um, he does a fairly good job because he he understood that the natives might be hard for him to control or predict, but he understood that the necessity of the natives was was high. And in the the quote was, "In the midst of the woods of America, one can no more do without them than without cavalry in open country." End quote. So he clearly understood the necessity of the Native Americans. He just didn't particularly like them. So let's talk about the fort itself. The fort was situated so that it would guard the main approach 
for the Upper Hudson River Valley, uh, the, and it was on the, the south end or the head of Lake George. It's designed and constructed by British engineer William Eyre, the gentleman from before that we spoke about. Uh, he's an officer of the 44th Foot. Fort William Henry was constructed to really just to be a projection of British power in the region, fend off Native American attacks, and, and really strongly control Lake George's southern shore. That's partially why those boats are so important is you can't, uh, you can't really project your power further from the fort uh, onto the lake itself if you don't have access to the lake. So those, those boats really do come back and, and haunt this whole story. Uh, the log and earth walls are about 30 feet thick. Uh, it's surrounded on three sides by dry moats that have been dug. Uh, and Lake George on the fourth side is a barrier if you have the ability to uh, stop anybody from using it as an access point. Obviously, you're not going to have infantry marching off the lake unless they're carried there somehow. Uh, it's built in a typical Vaubon-esque style f for the time. Uh, that means that it's it's one of those star-shaped forts that is low and slanting walls that are meant to uh, absorb and, and ricochet off cannon fire. Uh, they're also designed so that at any angle you you look at it, uh, if a enemy is trying to get up your wall or throw a ladder up, there's multiple angles from which you can uh, fire upon him, and, and it, there are a lot of uh, built-in fields of fire. The fort is, is it's kind of in a squarish form with the four diamond-like bastions at the corners. Again, check out the, uh, the show Instagram where you can find the map of the fort or the design of the fort there. Uh, in a straight fight of foot, so just infantry to infantry, Fort William Henry would have been uh, almost impossible for the French to take. Uh, it was very well made, very well designed, but... That's only if the French didn't bring guns. And by guns, I mean artillery. Uh, when we get to the actual siege of Fort William Henry, the French were able to do that because of the lake and because of the lack of any kind of intelligence network for the British. So they are able to bring up guns and the inherent flaws of Fort William Henry become all too clear at that point. I personally think that these diamond Vauban type forts are amazing. I love them. I love the look of them. Uh, they are, in their own way, they're just very aesthetically pleasing to my eye. I like them better than castles, uh, but definitely check it out and go look them up. If you, if you really dig them, uh, look up Vauban, the architect for the French Sun King, who really changed warfare in Europe during the, the reign of, uh, of, of the Sun King. The star-shaped forts all over Europe are, are his, kind of his ballywax. So check that out. But back to New York and the 1757 siege. And in the end of spring, Lieutenant Colonel George Monroe, who's an older officer, he's never seen battle. This is his first real uh, time where he's going to be in the heat and thick of it. He arrives at the fort with five companies of the 35th foot, and he releases Major Ayer's uh, winter garrison. They are sent home to recuperate and recover from what turned out to be a very eventful uh, winter and spring uh, posting for them. 
Added to Monroe's men are some men from New York, New Jersey, and New Hampshire. These are the colonial forces. And all told, Monroe has a tick over 1,500 men. And it should be enough to hold the fort for as long as they need to. Uh, but Monroe learns pretty early on into his posting here, uh, two escaped English prisoners from Fort Carillion come his way and let him know that Monroe is now facing potentially as many as 8,000 soldiers coming down uh, the bank of the, the, the uh, lake and headed for Fort William Henry. So Monroe, uh, trying to confirm this story from the prisoners, he sends out a recce in force, and it is uh, really they get caught in a trap by the French. The French capture large numbers of these men or kill them, and the whole thing is just a giant disaster for Monroe. He's not able to get any information, and he loses a bunch of people. So it's uh, it's a bad kind of a a, a bad start to. Monroe's tenure as the head at Fort William Henry. General Webb recognizes the danger that Monroe is in, and he has his men quarter, or he he orders Monroe to quarter his men in the fort. They would have normally had a little barracks building outside that was burned, and then they were camping outside. Webb decides, okay, something's afoot here. Quarter your men in the fort so that you uh, that they'll be protected at all times. And then also build up a fortified camp at Titcom's Mount, which is a, a rocky kind of outcropping rise about 750 yards southeast of the fort. Uh, and when Webb leaves Fort William Henry, he was inspecting and he was dealing with Monroe and kind of coming up with a game plan. When he leaves, he promises Monroe he'll send him help as soon as he gets to Fort Edward. Uh, this, we will see, comes back uh, to haunt Monroe, this promise, because, well, we'll see. And Monroe, he needs those men from Fort Edward under Webb, because now, after the failed recce, he's got about 1,100, maybe 1,100 men, 60 carpenters, some tradesmen, 80 women and children. So not necessarily... Um, a fighting force of great magnitude and definitely not ready or, you know, sizable enough to contend with Montcalm's 8,000 men. Webb, not wanting to strip his own strength once he gets to Fort Edward because he's afraid maybe this is all going to come to a head here, uh, he sends Monroe 200 regulars and 800 Massachusetts provincial or colonial soldiers, but that's it. And they arrive on August 2nd, um, the next day, men on the rampart of Fort William Henry saw the uh, kind of a weird sh shimmering spectacle out on the lake. And they don't know what it is. And they're trying to figure out what the hell is that? It's almost a mirage. And it turns out as they get closer and closer, they, they realize it's 250 French boats, 150 Indian war canoes, and they're all gliding towards the fort. Uh, these are all filled with men and weapons and they're clearly here for uh for nefarious purposes if you're the british the other thing that's interesting is the british are able to discern that about 40 to 60 of these boats are joined together making a kind of a, a large barge uh platform type of boat and on that are the siege guns that montcalm is now bringing to the fort uh, which will eventually spell its undoing that day, the first day of the 
siege, Monroe writes three frantic letters to General Webb at Fort Edward, beseeching that he get as many men up to Fort William Henry as possible. The desperation here must have been incredibly high. Monroe knows that he, whatever's hap- whatever is happening out on the lake surface is only a portion uh, of, of the true strength of Montcalm's force. He knows that there is a huge force coming through the, the forest uh, and that there's not much likelihood that he's going to be able to withstand whatever's brewing. Uh, the siege is going to be handled by Montcalm, obviously, and Montcalm, again, is European to the core, and so the siege is going to be done in the European fashion, which is all the more reason why Mon- Monroe knows what's coming and is is probably terrified, because that kind of a siege is so methodical. It's all about digging in, taking small gains, building trench systems, getting closer and closer to the walls, and then uh, pulling out the big guns and breaching the wall itself. Once the breach is made, then you send in the, the foot, and they uh, they just go, go to town on the fort. Fire, uh, the first firing is shot by French advanced scouts. Uh, as they're moving through the forts, or moving through the woods around the fort, they are beginning to take pot shots at the walls and anybody guarding uh, or any guard outposts as they go. Uh, they move around the fort and through the woods and cut off the road to Fort Edward. So almost from the very beginning, the camp is on its own. It's, it's isolated and surrounded. The fortified camp at Titcombs Mount was... Uh, also surrounded and cut off from the main fort. There are now Indian snipers or Native American snipers firing on the defenders throughout the day uh, from the, the from different high ground and, and wherever they could find good shooting positions. They are just taking pot shots at the garrison throughout the day. Uh, there is a garden plot. The fort has its own garden, obviously, to feed the, the garrison. Uh, this garden plot is just outside the western wall, and a bunch of Native American snipers uh, post up in that position there and, again, continue to take pot shots. So really what's happening is the walls are being kept clear by the snipers so that the French forces can begin to set up their camp and their positions and get themselves situated without the British really seeing what's going on or having a good feel of what's going on. Uh, The initial phases are going on uh, and Montcalm begins disembarking his main body and he begins the true investment of the fort by sighting out and planning his entrenchments. Uh, He's really leaning into the the European style uh, of, of siege here and he formally demands the fort's surrender at 3 p.m. Monroe, again, this is his first battle, so there's got to be some professional drive and some personal pride in, in maybe trying to withstand whatever's about to come his way. Uh, but there's also there's a like a gentleman's obligatory response that has to be given because until there's a hole in the wall by by standard European etiquette or formalities until there's a a hole in the wall the the garrison 
isn't supposed to surrender. I know it sounds crazy, but they're they lose any kind of respect from their enemy, and they they definitely lose any respect from their own men uh, or their their leaders and and people back home if they don't at least put up enough of a fight that the walls begin to fall, uh, which is at that point then everybody's honor is satisfied and the garrison typically is allowed to surrender with you know with a certain amount of dignity. Um, the fort was in in a tough spot, but it, it wasn't p- particularly hopeless. Uh, the magazines were loaded, if not necessarily overflowing. The walls had uh, the, the fort had its own big guns. It had eighteen large cannon and, and thirteen small anti personnel swivel cannons. So that's kind of imagine a pirate ship. Those are the little type cannons that are on the on the uh, deck of a of a ship. Uh, these are, they also, there were a couple of mortars and a howitzer and even Titcom's mount, that fortified camp outside the walls has a good amount of field guns. It's got 10 field guns and, and is in a position where it should be easy enough to uh, stand up to at least a, a few onslaughts. And, and the, what you have to keep in mind is that Monroe at this point thinks that Webb is coming. He thinks Webb is going to show up. And maybe what we can do is hold the French here, tie them down, keep them busy in the investment of the fort, uh, put on a good enough show and fight uh, hard enough that we, you know, we keep them distracted, and then maybe Webb shows up on the back backside of Montcalm's army, and maybe this whole thing can turn into a huge British victory. The, uh, the immediate threat of the French, there's the traditional f- threat to wooden buildings is fire, and especially in a siege, you've got uh, the enemies going to try and do whatever they can to light your fort on fire. Well, Monroe, in a, in a very wise move, has all the firewood and flammable roof shingles and anything that might get um, might catch flame. He has that all dumped into the lake or wet and damp so that there's little threat of fire. So the fort is in good shape or good enough shape that it should be able to hold out until Webb shows up. On August 4th, Montcalm starts to really dig his line of trenches. He's less than a half a mile from the northern bastion of the fort, and he starts to lay his heavy artillery pieces in, which is really just setting up the firing positions. He's got them pointed, or he'll have them pointed at the western wall of the fort, hoping to knock that in and and create a breach. Uh, Webb, it's realized, is not coming. Uh, as again, he sent those letters, uh, but what he doesn't know is that uh, Webb is not coming. He, he really doesn't want to weaken his position now that he knows the size of Montcalm's force. He knows the danger of Montcalm uh, maybe rolling up the British uh, forces in the area. Just if he takes Fort William Henry and then is somehow able to take Fort Edward, it exposes the Albany area, the upper New York area. And uh, he advises, he sends a letter to Monroe. He advises Monroe to get the best terms he can uh, or the best terms he gets, uh, he can negotiate. And as soon as the fort becomes untenable, Monroe is is ordered to uh, basically go about the business of surrendering. Monroe has no idea that Webb is telling him this. Monroe has no idea that Webb is not coming, and that's because of Montcalm. One of Montcalm's men, 
they st- kind of stalked the forest in, in and when I say stalked, like hunted the forests around the fort, taking out any couriers in the woods and uh, stripping them of, of their messages and killing them. Uh, and the the letters that were meant for Monroe from Webb are taken and Montcalm. So now Montcalm has that information. He's aware that Webb is not coming. He's aware that Webb is ordering Monroe to surrender if he gets good terms. Uh, so again, Montcalm is really in the, the, the position of, of power in this whole situation. I can't believe this is the first time that I'm going to refer to the movie The Last of the Mohicans, but if you watch uh, Last of the Mohicans, they do a scene where uh, a, a courier is sent out from Monroe's fort, uh, Fort William Henry, and the uh, the Native American, the French allies, they are able to uh, track him down in the forest and get him. It's a great. Uh, we'll talk about the movie later, but it's it's one of my all time favorite. Um, the the sixth. So on the sixth, now there's fighting going on throughout this. You know, men are firing back and forth throughout this. Uh, but on the sixth, the French sappers completed the gun emplacements and they began to fire the big guns. So on the morning of the seventh, a second battery begins firing, and there was plans to have an even bigger battery placed in, and this would have been a breaching battery on the uh, uh, the following day. That would have been the eighth. On that day, Montcalm actually sends Monroe the letter from Webb and urges him again to take Webb's advice and surrender. The letter is covered in blood, and it's deemed legitimate by Monroe, uh, who would have known Webb's handwriting, obviously, and would have known his seal very well. Uh, But Monroe's fort is still intact. The walls are still intact. So without any breach in the wall, uh, the meaning uh, of the... uh, Without any breach in the wall, the, the, the fort can't really be surrendered with Monroe's dignity intact. So uh, he's in a tough spot because the French bombardment is, is highly demoralizing. It's uh, their shrapnel. It's beginning to take a, a real toll on the garrison. Uh, and his own guns are, are not doing their job. They're not uh, answering the French gunfire. They're, they're pretty, it's a pretty pitiful performance by the British cannon, uh, with many of them bursting from just continuous use and really not doing anything uh, to stop or stall the French. On August 8th, the end is near. Monroe recognizes that there's really not much he can do. Um, His men and he and his men come together for a council of war, uh, and the they uh, threaten to hang anyone that talks uh, of, about surrendering, but in this this little um, council of war, it's decided that the the fort can't be held. There's an engineer who assesses the damage to the fort. Uh, he informs Monroe that there's nothing he can do, uh, that the French were firing basically uh, at such a, a, a constant pace and with such accuracy that the top three feet of the bastion in the north is gone and the casements of the fort are heavily damaged. There's only five cannon left anyways. Uh, the ammo for those cannons is running out. Titcom's mount is in rough shape. Uh, so again, with uh, after assessing all that, the uh, night of August 8th, 9th, the French finally set up the uh, official 
breaching gun that's an 18 pounder and this is going to be firing from under 300 yards away on that west wall things are not looking good in the morning of the 9th monroe summons again another council of war and the consensus is amongst his officers to surrender under the white flag of truce uh, at 1 p.m the details are knocked out between montcalm and monroe Montcalm acknowledged the uh, the defense had been conducted with a very high level of professionalism. He gives a Monroe a stick tap, tip of the cap kind of uh, agreement. Is the entire garrison safe passage to Fort Edward under escort, of course, and he permits them to keep their personal effects. He uh, allows them to keep their small arms. He allows the units to keep their colors. Uh, and he allows one brass field piece to be returned to Fort Webb with Colonel Monroe. He asks, really only, uh, his only demand is is 18 months on parole as non-combatants. So what this works out to is the British at Fort William Henry are offered pretty much everything. They can take whatever they need, whatever they have. Uh, they are allowed to keep their military dignity, uh, and they are only being asked to not fight for 18 months. So that parole uh, only lasts, uh, you know, a, a little over a year, and then they can get back into the fight. I, and nobody really, ca- well, not nobody, but very rarely did you have people holding to the parole uh, although at this point, you, you'd you see it a little bit more regularly. By the time of Napoleon, you give an officer's parole, and he's likely to be right back in the fight not too long after. Um, the, the stores of ammo and food in the fort obviously are surrendered to the French. The French are not going to let you take your cannon and your cannonballs and all the food to Fort uh, Edward, obviously, Part of this whole thing is, is I'm sure in Montcalm's mind, is if he brings all these hungry mouths to Fort Edward, now he's putting more stress on Fort Edward, and uh, and it's possible that if he's a, going to attack there, it would be harder for Fort Edward to defend itself. Um, the French escort is put together and is getting set to uh, deliver the garrison to Fort Edward, um, and then that's when all hell breaks loose. Uh, I think it's kind of funny. The plan was to do this in a half an hour, uh, but even this small little battle seems to have so many little side avenues and tentacles that uh, we've been talking for about 40 minutes, and I've got a good 10, 15 minutes left. So let's get to the massacre. That's what makes Fort William Henry particularly interesting. Uh, the negotiations between Monroe and Montcalm go on for a little bit, and when it's all done and said and complete, Montcalm goes up to his allies, the Native Americans, and he goes to the war chiefs and says, it's a done deal, don't let your men touch any of the British. Uh, the Native Americans are pretty, they listen to him, they kind of agree, and then they basically say, we're going to do whatever we want, so... The warriors had, I mean, they've traveled from all over the land. They've traveled from afar. Uh, They've done much of the fighting. They've done the the heavy lifting in this whole campaign. Uh, And the French then, they're they're not fighting for wages. They're not getting paid like the French regulars. They're here for plunder, slaves, captives, uh... Basically, they're there to get loot, and now the French have told them, "No, nah, you're you're good. 
we we made a promise with the other white men and uh we're not gonna we're not gonna let you take any of the stuff that they have uh, Montcalm is called by the father or he's called father by the natives uh, and the natives felt that father had betrayed them so they decided to just take what they want and to hell with the French and they'll they'll take their loot and go home on the afternoon of August 9th, the British are forced to move out of Fort William Henry to Titcombs Mount, that fortified camp not too far. And it's here that the, uh, the civilians and the British soldiers are just kind of milling around, waiting to be escorted to Fort Edward as part of the deal. Uh, by the time the last of the garrison is leaving, the Native Americans ransack the interior of the fort to try and find anything of value. Uh, they pretty much come up empty-handed and there's a bunch of wounded and sick and injured British still in the fort. They've yet to be evacuated. Uh, there's about 70 of them and the Native Americans go kind of nuts on them. They tomahawk and uh, scalp and, and really just go to town on these guys uh, up until the French soldiers intervene, saving a few of them but uh, it's only the beginning of what's to uh, what's to eventually happen. Uh, the rest of that afternoon on the 9th and into the night, the Native Americans kind of circle the uh, Titcombs Mount, that camp now where all the British and the civilians are uh, encamped, and they kind of catcall and they make noises and war chants and screams and all sorts of stuff in the night to screw around with the British mentality to get them on edge, to scare them. They also will um, go about trying to essentially rob the uh, civilians. They're going up to them, and uh, the they're just taking what they want off of their persons. Uh, at dawn on the 10th, the French round up the British. They, they get all the soldiers and the civilians out of the Titcombs Mount. They have the British regulars moving at the front of the column, uh, towards the on their escorted march back to Fort Edward, uh, so the the regular soldiers are at the front of the column, closely guarded by the French troops. The rest of the people are kind of just in the middle of the column, and and then they're trailing off to the end, and they're just following along. As they're going, all of a sudden the Native Americans start swarming around the column. They uh, they just kind of infiltrate into the the civilians and the colonial troops uh they're taking their knives and tomahawks and guns and they are just starting to uh to really make a make a show of it there's no real violence yet they're pulling food and weapons from people uh they take clothing uh black people or slaves uh women and children are, are being snatched and dragged away, but there's no real violence. And then all of a sudden, there's a great big whooping uh, noise, and all these Native Americans start making uh, their war cries, and then they just start whacking away. They start tomahawking and scalping and stabbing. Uh, it turns into this bloody fiasco. Uh, you have colonial soldiers and civilians, and uh, they're fleeing in every direction into the forest, trying to get away. Uh, the The British regulars are... Uh, they're trying to keep some semblance of order. Uh, they also end up breaking and running. The French escort is is helpless. They're not really doing anything to help, but they can't really intervene. They don't want to start firing on their supposed ally. Um, the Native Americans are just trying to make this wor this whole thing worth it for themselves. So they're trying to get as many 
living captives because then they can bring them up to the slave markets in Quebec um, and sell them. The whole thing is just this massive, crazed moment of frustration on the part of the Native Americans, uh, fear and panic on the part of the provincials and the British, uh, kind of just just a horrific moment. Uh, the movie obviously has this incredibly good scene. Um, they've done an, a fascinating job of uh, recreating it, however incorrect uh, Fenimore Cooper had it in his book, uh, because uh, Mon- Monroe is not killed. Uh, the British aren't as organized in the whole process. Uh, it's not as pretty looking as the movie made it out to be. But uh, they did a very good job of, of, especially that initial attack by the natives, uh, they did a very good job of recreating that, in my opinion. Uh, Montcalm and the other officers try and step in and bring some order to the whole thing, but they just can't seem to rein in the Native Americans. Uh, and the, the natives, they, they take their captives and they get the hell out of Dodge. Uh, and a lot of the French officers, one of the, the kind of horrific things here is, You'd have a lot of French officers try and grab a hold of, like, a a British woman or uh, try and drag away their captives. And instead of uh, the Native Americans, instead of letting them have their captives, uh, they would just kill the person. They'd rather have a dead British woman in their arms than have the French grab the person and save them. Uh, So there's just uh, hundreds of little struggles for life and death all over this place. Um, Each one just brutal in its own fashion. By the time the whole thing had settled down and and order was restored, 185 soldiers and camp people or civilians or provincials had been killed by the Native Americans. 350. 300 to 500 of them had been taken captive. Remember, this is out of like 1,100 people. So uh, almost half of them are, are either taken captive or killed. And the, the, uh, the, the few remaining, around 500 or so, find refuge with the, the French escort. Uh, and everyone else had run and escaped into the woods or run down the road as fast as they could to Fort Edward. Uh, almost all 1,600 or so of the Indian, uh, the Native Americans left immediately after the uh, the massacre, taking their plunder, taking their loot, and taking their captives and, and paddling their way north. Um, the 10th saw the, the real... Uh, beginning of the myth of the massacre because small groups uh, that did escape from the the massacre found their way to Fort Edwards fairly quickly and right off the 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 right from the the get-go they started making fairly wild and exaggerated reports of what happened telling of of just horrific uh, deeds done by the natives and and hundreds of more people were killed than were actually killed uh, for the next few weeks, stragglers would show up at Fort Edwards, uh, some, most of them starving, some of them uh, bare naked. Uh, on the 15th, the largest group shows up, and this is uh, the group that has their little brass cannon and Colonel Monroe in tow. Uh, he gives his report, and obviously uh, Webb is, is stunned at the, the violence of, of what occurred after what was seemingly a fairly mundane European-type siege and surrender. 
Montcalm and the French uh, general in charge of Canada, Vaudrill, they tried their best to uh, recoup and, and, and make things right. Uh, they tried to intercept and stop the Native Americans going so far as, as actually ransoming a lot of the prisoners. Uh, some 200 of the prisoners taken by the Native Americans ended up getting bought back by the French uh, leadership. And by late August, they were paying around 1,400 livres and 30 bottles of brandy per captive. Some of the captives died in, uh, in captivity, and as many as 40 ended up getting formally adopted by their Native American family. There's a book written by uh, a young girl who ended up being adopted and, and then living with her Native American family and choosing to stay there. A lot of them did. Uh, it's it's worth digging deeper into. I don't want to get too in the weeds on it, but looking at the slave trade of the Native Americans and the adoption process it's not what you imagine when you think of, you know, slaves in America. You think of chattel slavery and, and the horrific slavery of the South. This is not that. Uh, the Native Americans practiced uh, a very different type of slavery, not to say it wasn't in its own way uh, a fairly, you know, a harsh and, and, and rough-and-tumble type of thing. In fact, some of the captives taken were uh, ritualistically eaten or sacrificed by different tribes according to their uh, their their religious rights or or you know their their custom. Uh, Montcalm had given his honor to Monroe, and so the reason that he particularly pursued as much uh, as many of the captives and trying to get them uh, freed and sent back to the British was because his his personal honor was all round up in or you know wound up in this this kind of insane moment and he also had a very right you know uh, a very healthy fear of the uh, the way that the British would react he was very very aware that the news of this massacre might spread through the British colonies might get back all the way to London and and really uh, turn public opinion in London against the French even more so than it already was and he feared that the colonists would would kind of swarm to the cause now that they had uh, they had stories of, of hundreds and even thousands of, of their own being murdered by the Native Americans in the middle of the forest after surrendering. So beyond just the massacre, the aftermath of the the battle and then the aftermath of the massacre is is really huge. It's hard to quantify in terms of the war. Uh, as a whole, never again would the Native Americans flock to the French banners uh, in quite the numbers that they did in 1757. They uh, they found out uh, how they were going to be treated by the French too late. They realized that they were going to be considered junior partners in the venture, if partners at all, uh, and that didn't really sit well with many of them. Unfortunately, the uh, the other aspect that kept them from congregating and, and, and swarming to the French quite the way that they had in the past is that uh, the fort had been dealing with a, an outbreak of smallpox. A lot of the tribes from the, the plains and the Great Lakes and, and even farther afield north had grabbed whatever they could out of that fort. And a lot of the captives that they had taken uh, had smallpox. And uh, 
by the time that these warriors got back home, uh, they were starting to get sick and smallpox just ran rampant through a lot of the tribes that had been uh, a part of the siege. Uh, we don't know how many people died in the uh, aftermath of that, uh, but you can be assured that it, it, that it did what smallpox does, which is it probably decimated these tribes. Uh, Montcalm would also rely less and less on natives. Uh, he tried to force the war to take a more European uh, overall flavor to it, and that was a failure uh, for the French. As as the war starts to shift after that, uh, the massacre, we start to see the British kind of... Uh, crystallizing and uh, in, in creating the strategy that would win and the French doing the opposite. They start to shift their strategy and try and make it more European and you can't fight a European war in the North American woodlands and rivers and all that going on. There's no real room for maneuver and even if you tried, you'd have, uh, you'd have light and irregular units constantly harassing you. Uh, the Canadians, they would also have a huge famine, uh, a failure of crops that uh, was was on a on a uh, on a massive scale. Um, 1756 by itself and 57 as well were among Canada's worst crop yields in history, especially in the Montreal area, which is known as the Granary of Canada, and that meant so. Montcalm wins this great victory and he can't do anything with it because he can't go to Fort Edward and attack it uh, because he doesn't have the food to extend his stay in Fort William Henry. He's got to scurry on back to Fort Carillion. And this is a missed opportunity. It's a huge missed opportunity. Had he gone on to uh, take Fort Edward, it's possible, again, he would have been able to uh, really harass the Albany region and been a, a pain in the British side, um, and it never never materialized that way. Uh, the other long-term effect of the massacre was that it, to what, Monc- it, what Montcalm was fearing, it came true. The, the colonists were riled up. They were stirred up like a beehive, and uh, they really, really leaned into the efforts of the the, the war uh, after the massacre. Thousands of provincials mobilized, and and really quickly by August seventh uh, to the tenth, the uh, after August tenth, the Connecticut uh, alone raised five thousand men and sent them to Fort Edwards. Um, the twelfth. On August 12th, 7,000 men from the Massachusetts militia were headed to the fort. And in fact, Webb ended up getting so many men from the colonies, uh, so many irregular and provincial soldiers that he wasn't able to feed them. And he just told them to go home. Uh, He ended up dismissing them uh, as soon as the French danger of attack had passed. Uh, But what it did is it was a, a real... Uh, strong indication of what the manpower uh, possibilities were from the colonies. It was it was a a very good demonstration of the militia's ability to to respond uh, on a large scale and with a great deal of speed um, to to a crisis. And the British were now factoring that into that their war plan moving forward. They uh, they recognized it for what it was. 
the siege of Fort William Henry and the massacre that followed are really, really big moments in the French and Indian War, which make them big moments in not just American history, U.S. history, but in world history. Because after 1758, you have uh, William Pitt creates the kind of system moving forward that's going to eventually give the British the victory. Uh, The French surrender Quebec in 59 at the Plains of Abraham. Uh, The British capture Montreal in 1760 and 1763. The Treaty of Paris officially ends the war between Britain and France. Um, And from there, in 1764, the British create the Sugar Act, and it's a tax on the American colonies. From here on, you're going to have the Sugar Act, the Currency Act, the Stamp Act, and all the various little uh, taxes and, and tithes and all the little tiny annoyances that the British will put on the colonies that eventually lead to revolution. It's, uh, it's all stemming from this, this war, this first global war, this first world war. Um, if you really break it down, what the American Revolution, Revolutionary War stem, uh, basically equates to is the colonists screamed and cried that the British needed to protect them from the French and the natives. The British came and did that. And then when the British turned around and said, now you've got to cover the cost of our involvement, the Americans said, nah, we're good. Uh, so the uh, the French and Indian War, the siege of Fort William Henry, incredibly important. Um, I wish more people uh, knew about the French and Indian War. I wish there was more Uh, more content on it it's such a fascinating time period and it's such a fascinating piece of military history the book again that i used was fred anderson um his crucible of war it is phenomenal uh i can't express to you how much i think you should read this book Um, he also was very kind i reached out to him to see if he would join for a conversation on this um, and he was very, very sweet man. His response was uh, old school letter writing at its finest. Um, very, very intelligent um, and uh, really readable piece of history. His book is is just very quick history. It's good. I mean, the book's not quick. I think it's like uh, 800 pages or something. But the the way he writes is very uh, digestible. It's very fast-paced. It, it really reads more like a novel than anything else, which is always good when you've got um, a, a story like this. The book, uh, Last of the Mohicans, I read it about 15 years ago, and it's pretty dry, <laughs> not going to lie, but uh, it's a classic, and it's worth checking out. I would probably say just watch the movie. Um, the original movie is uh, pretty good, uh, but the, the, the Michael Mann 1992 or 1993 um, movie with Daniel Day-Lewis is phenomenal. He's amazing in it. Every, every part of that movie, I think, is great, but maybe the best part is the, uh, the soundtrack. Oh, God, I love that damn soundtrack. Um, so check that out. I'd love to get some uh, feedback from you guys. If you can, go and rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or whatever you're listening to this on. 
Uh, again, upcoming show is Aya Drang, the, the Battle of Aya Drang. That's Vietnam. That is the first contest between the NVA and the Americans, or real contest. Um, that's Hal Moore and the We Were Soldiers Once in Young battle. Uh, so I'm very excited about that. The feedback has already been really, really good on that. And that will be out next Friday. The system I've got going now is going to allow us to break these battles down. And, and you might see a lot more of the two-part episodes. So instead of doing one giant hour and 20-minute block, I'm going to maybe break it down into like half-hour half episodes, and that might help it. If you get the chance, go and listen to the show Fix Bayonets. It's a World War One podcast where myself, uh, Mike Cuna of the uh, history uh, Battles of the First World War, and uh, Nicole... We each take a different part of a battle and we talk about it. So she does the bird's eye strategy, Mike does the tactical, and I do the uh, first person, uh, you know, man on the ground type of stuff. So we are currently covering the Battles of the Frontiers, and, um, and that's worth giving a listen. Also rate, review, and subscribe there. Uh, if you have any comments, questions, concerns, corrections, anything that you wanted to uh, bring up, just reach out to me either through the show email or on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, and uh, thank you again for hanging in there and being so patient. And I hope you guys are all staying healthy and that uh, we can go into the, the winter with um, more more cauldron than you, uh, you've had in a while. All righty. Have a good day now.